For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hello. This, this is the rare uh, real-time introduction, as in approximately three minutes I will be doing this interview <laughs> with Thomas Morton, um, who was with Vice for a long time, originally Vice the Magazine, and then some of their TV ventures, been on the HBO show. Uh, he's someone who's writing I've liked for a while. Uh, I feel like one of the early stories when we were first starting Long Form that we were both quite excited by was a story he wrote about... Uh, simultaneously joining three different New York City cults. Sounds like something you and I would like. Yes. Um, But uh, he bubbled uh, to my mind again um, because he published a story on Medium. So uh, I'm just going to say I'm guessing that people who listen to the show will be aware of this. Uh, Jill Abramson, uh, former uh, editor of The New York Times, uh, published a book called The The Merchants of Truth. That's right. That is about four news organizations, but one of them is Vice. And in the Vice chapter, uh, she tells the story through the lens of uh, a young reporter named Thomas Morton. Uh, and I first came across this piece he wrote on Medium where he was basically like, <laughs> this is like a cruel joke to see my life depicted that way. Also, I'm massively misquoted in this book. He said that in a much more entertaining way than I'm currently depicting it. Um, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting, following this away. And since then, um, since booking him for this show, I think this is the rare time where uh, this uh, we've gotten more uh, excited for an interview before it even happened. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, allegations of plagiarism by uh, Jill Abramson in that book. And uh, I would say he uh, appears to be somewhat vindicated in his belief that uh, some of the things he is uh, said to be saying in this book, uh, he may not have said in the interview. Aaron, you're really on the news with this interview. Look, we're only on the news about once every three (laughs) years, and it's kind of like a comet that's circling a planet. We just uh, we can't miss 50 times a year. So uh, we're on the news cycle this week. Uh, coming to you in real time here. Yeah, it's fun. I, uh, none of us know what's going to happen, what this guy's going to say. Yeah. Uh, wh- wh- uh, do you guys have any questions you want me to ask him? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Medium's one great way to get your message out uh, if you've been misquoted in your life story uh, as adaptation into a Jill Abramson book. Another one would be an email newsletter if it's an ongoing story. Uh, which this one appears to be. Um, They make it really easy to start one that can grow as your list does. You don't even have to pay for it until a certain number of people sign up. So check them out. Thanks to MailChimp. MailChimp has a nice feature, too, where if you copy and paste from somewhere, it keeps the formatting. Ooh, Max. (laughs) Maybe your spiciest appearance ever on this podcast. I feel like we, uh, we don't actually have that. We don't, we, uh, we don't even we don't really know how to be topical. <laughs> <laughs> they're real cold. They're just flaming hot. And here comes Aaron's guest, Thomas Morton. Well, 
Welcome, Thomas Morton. Thank you. Hi. Uh, strange week. Strange, what is it? A couple weeks, 10, I guess. How long ago did that medium piece you published came out? Um, I think that was two weeks ago, but then it kind of sat dormant for a week. And then um, Michael Moynihan posted all the stuff about plagiarism in the book, and that's when it kind of picked up. I'm going to, um, I rarely uh, do this on the show, but I'm going to disclaimer here that uh, my wife uh, works at uh, what is now your former employer, uh, Vice, your longtime employer, Vice. And so I was a bit aware of this stuff that it was going around. She was like, oh, people are freaking out about this Jill Abramson book. And the dumb lizard brain in my head um, sort of went, oh, like no one likes to see themselves of course, depicted yeah. in journalism. No one likes like, to see almost depicted Almost everyone has been unhappy with how they came across in a profile. Of course. Um, but you were asked oh, a little over a year ago, I think, um, to do this interview for the yeah. book. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I could remember the exact timing. It was sometime in the last year. It was, it was probably around this time last year, maybe yeah. early spring or so. Yeah. I think... Jill was talking to a lot of people at Vice, and um, I can't remember if she reached out directly or if like one of our communications people was like, hey, do you want yep. to do this? But either way, yeah. When you're talking something like that, I mean, you you were unaware that you would be, or that, oh, that, that your they, story- they an entire chapter about me, yeah. Yeah, no, you I were unaware that your story would be um, elevated above, say, the story of other people who are being interviewed. Right, yeah. I couldn't imagine it being more interesting than anybody else's in terms of what we talked about. Uh, like I felt like I was mostly just giving her background on the company. So you started at Vice when? 2004. 2004. So yeah. you are um, were until recently yeah. one of the most long-standing Vice employees. You I are think not. I was. Less... I think I was within the top five longest employed employees. Yeah. Um. What? Like, what did she want to know? What did she want to know? Yeah. Um. Whole deal. Um. I basically yeah walked her through the history of the company from my perspective from 2004 up to, uh, you know, that morning with, you know, heavy, pretty heavy emphasis on things that I was a part of and like projects. But it was in, in truth, it was, it was a lot less my story than what was going on with the company. A lot of the people that kind of the, you know, the important people at the various phases of vice who are, you know, heading up, uh, you know, when I, when I landed, there was still just the magazine and like the record labels going on that kind of stuff, but there's no video, no real video work to speak of. And, um, so, you know, the, like Jesse Pearson, who was the editor at the time was, you know, my, he like hired me and was, was my mentor pretty much like, you know, after Gavin left, like the deciding person, as far as editorial content went in the company for both. And when they got started with video, did a lot of that. And then there'd be, you know, through the different phases that Vice went through, the different uh, different shifts, there'd be different people who would come on. But there was always, you know, like two or th- one or two or two or three people who were kind of like, you know, the essential players of the time who kind of like, you know, sort of for, usually for better, kind of embodied whatever spirit the company kind of was riding on. And, you know, and so I think that, like, I feel like that was more what I talked about with Jill than myself, but there's a lot about myself in there too. And I think I did get into like a little bit, she probably asked a little bit of background about like how I landed at the company, which involves, you know, I mean, like being a fan of the magazine and writing to them and coming and taking an internship and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, I certainly didn't think that there was going to be 75 pages that were <laughs> like, you know, 60 of which were just me. And well, well, weren't me. <laughs> Had my name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sort of weird so uh, I encourage people to like um, to read um, Thomas's uh, medium piece because we don't have enough time to go over all of the ways in which um, Thomas in the book differs from you. Um, <laughs> I'll just cite one of them that you bring up as sort of a repeated gag in the story, which is that she says that you uh, became ov- uh, aware of Vice after you uh, came across it at your favorite streetwear store. That, like, my blood literally boils every time I hear that. (laughs) I think you're a little younger than me, but we're, like, children of the early 80s, I think. Right, yeah, 36. What are you? I'm 37. Okay, good. So I don't even remember streetwear existing in 2004 as a term, and I actually was wondering if, if, like, some of the inaccuracies feel like um, like a weird game of telephone being played across oh, yeah. generations. Right, yeah. And it's uh, what's been kind of fun about like all the mistakes in the book is like reading through them, like, and reading through them the first time I was just kind of baffled, but yeah. when I went back and looked at it, I could see where like the pieces came from. Like every like weird just 
piece of false information always has some like just like one little puzzle piece that relates to something that did happen at some point yeah. and was just completely rearranged and put into context that doesn't make any sense and like, you know, move 10 years in, you know, one direction or the other. Uh, but I mean, the streetwear thing, I don't know. That just like, that is one that I'm still, I still haven't found a source for. Uh, My- I, I remember it in the context of like Vice making fun of it as a term. That was probably where I came, like first like remember seeing the term streetwear. Yeah. So is it like possible... I mean, I don't want to like litigate this whole thing, but I am curious about this as a sort of a confluence of multiple strands I'm interested in. Like, did you maybe say like I saw Vice when I was buying shoes or something like that? Or like, no, have you been able to like sort of like unpack where you think these like inaccuracies started? I guess is my question. Well, one, I mean, one thing that was really helpful about when Michael Moynihan posted all the, the plagiarized passages, um, yeah. aside from bringing light to the whole thing and yeah. uh, getting exposure I'll, I'll for say it. that, that um, when I asked you to come on the show, yeah. that information wasn't, oh, it even, hadn't happened, right? yeah. hadn't even happened yet. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, you must be feeling some sense of vindication right now. <laughs> <laughs> a mixed one. Okay. Because yeah. it's, it, it's funny. People put a lot more weight on plagiarism than they do like libel, it seems. And, you know, I think, you know, both are obviously grave offenses when you're writing like nonfiction, especially when you're, you know, a former executive editor of the New York Times and have that next to your name anytime you're trotting out your journalistic credentials, whatever, you know, I think it's, you know, we're late capitalist. And so it's like you take somebody's property, that's a far graver offense than just saying something bad about them, even though the bad things said are just, you know, like literally textbook libel. (laughs) Well, I think that um, one of those things is just like maybe easier to demonstrate and say a tweet at the tweet scale, like, um, your article requires you to invest like a good half an hour That's true, in yeah, it. And I think um, people are very willing <laughs> to make a very tiny thing, but I think they're all kind of, they're all parts of uh, the same puzzle. Yeah, so yeah. regardless of sort of what people attach themselves to, I am interested in this. I mean, to set out to tell a story about Vice, this um, upstart company and say they're kind of, trying too hard to be cool and we're reckless as a result and then it turns out that the thing saying that itself was yeah. <laughs> kind of reckless and, and sloppy is like the ironing like, is delicious yeah right? and I, like it was like when you said mixed verdict I was almost like there needs to be like a German word for that where you're kind of like proven to be somewhat right but you wouldn't choose right. for that outcome anyway so what was that experience of reading about yourself and seeing this other person like it was it was infuriating but in kind of like the way that you know listening to like some talk radio guy can be infuriating you know like i didn't feel like like oh like this great trust i established right. with jill abrams has been broken and uh how dare she but but i did feel like how dare she it was you know it was like i mean just the brazenness of it like the just the flagrancy of the errors was I mean I'm still just kind of like gobsmacked by it. It's um, and it was funny too because I was um the the way I found out about it was the you know the review copy I got my hands on wasn't you know like what wasn't sent to me or anything like that. Like I had a friend who was reviewing the book who texted me that and he was like, "Hey, you're in this thing. Yeah, like there's a whole chapter about you." And I was like, "That's and I and at the time because I'd had no communication from Jill Abrams or any of her people or Simon Schuster or anything like that. Yeah, I'd forgotten doing that interview and for you know a good twenty minutes I was sort of like, did she just make up everything about me? Like, did I ever even talk to this person? And I went back and I was like, all right, there's that. Am I a real person? Yeah. Even? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Who I, is Thomas Morton? Um, so it took, yeah, it was, it was a long process because I, I, you know, I had to go back and dig up whatever, uh, email I had relating to that and remember what I'd talked to her about and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I went through the book a couple times. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't very dramatic. It was just kind of like this slowly escalating, like, are you fucking kidding me? And it comes amidst, um, some, other dispiriting staff advice, a bunch of layoffs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which also crossed paths with your life. Yeah, yeah. So you no longer are working at Vice. Nope. You were laid off after, let's see, 2004, 15 years? Uh, going into my 15th year. 15th so year. 14, like 14 and three quarters. This is basically like your whole adult life. Yeah, if you want to call it adulture. <laughs> um, maybe, I do want to talk a little bit more about the and stuff, but I feel like since you were denied 
the chance to tell your career story <laughs> in this book, um, maybe we could talk through it and sort of uh, catch up to speed um, sure. for the things that are not in uh, Merchants of Truth. So <laughs> how did you um, how did you get interested in journalism? Um, what path led you to Vice in well, the first place? I, I would say I've never been interested in journalism and performing journalism. It's maybe a kind of deep in the weed semantic distinction it comes up very often it used to come up a lot less before kind of vice attached news to their name and you know we started getting kind of put in the same camp as uh kind of major news media and you know and if you ever want to criticize somebody who like does something in documentary or writes nonfiction, you know, like calling them a journalist and then saying they're a lousy journalist is a very easy way to do it because there's all sorts of ways you can screw up journalism, like capital J, J school, institutional journalism. Yeah. That don't necessarily mean you're a bad storyteller or you're dishonest or any of that. So I was, I would say I was particularly, un- I, well, in high school, I worked at the school newspaper, which I had a lot of fun at. I just think it was like 1999 or something and so I just discovered The Onion and the teacher who sponsored the newspaper had like a cousin at Harvard I think and so we got copies of The Lampoon um, that she would bring us and like I was with you know a bunch of friends were very creative and funny and we essentially turned the newspaper into a humor magazine roughly you know, funny how like actually. college or high school media often is either extremely serious <laughs> or extremely unserious yeah it's very rarely like um tiptoeing between those lines no it's true and we had like two camps in the school newspaper you know there was like the the five or six kids who wanted to be like wanted to win awards and go out and like break stories and like they were you know on their way to columbia journalism school or missouri or wherever um and then there was the rest of us clowns who were yeah. like you know Literally just like making up stories, like like it was fun. It was goofy though. <laughs> and this is where? Uh, this was in suburban Atlanta. So this is in East Cobb County, Georgia, in in high school. And where did uh, where did that lead you? Uh, <laughs> to the principal's <laughs> office a few times. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that it spiritually connected with the later stuff, but it didn't like I didn't know <laughs> I didn't get that paper didn't get me anywhere. <laughs> um, but uh, I went to NYU for college and I dabbled, I was doing an English degree. I decided that pretty early on and I was dabbling in kind of doing a second degree or minoring or whatever in journalism. And I took the very basic classes like reporting one and things like that. And I realized immediately, like it was just not for me. It was a bad fit. I, I didn't like, I didn't like any of it. I didn't like their approach to writing. I didn't like their approach to storytelling. I didn't like their approach to how you treated subjects, which I felt was very, there was a sense of superiority that it felt like they were trying to directly instill in like, you know, 18 year old kids. I didn't, as I learned more and more about the ethics that they were teaching, I I came to a sense that by and large, most of them were not directed towards, you know, improving the veracity of stories or, you know, ensuring the integrity of story, like the reporters or storytellers. And that a lot of them were to cover the bases of the people with money, the publishers, the people putting out the media and things like that. And they were often things that worked to the detriment of reporters. You know, there's, I, I think, a classic rule where it's, you know, you're not supposed to exchange gifts down to the hard level, you know, never buy a subject coffee or never let them buy you coffee. And the reasoning being supposedly it's like, well, then you can't tell, you know, if they're just saying what you want them to say or whatever. And it's like, well, a reporter can tell that a good one can, you know, and if somebody's willing to change their complete story for a cup of coffee, you know, for a dollar fifty cup of brown water, like that's a really bad subject and you shouldn't right. be talking to them in the first place. But the real reason that rule exists as it does you know for like police and stuff like that is that in the event that somebody wants to get you in trouble wants to like call you out and try to discredit your story that would be an embarrassment to your editor and your publisher and those kind of things and it, and it you know it's you're playing it safe on their behalf it's you know in the event of like this you know some sort of coffee gate it would be very easy for a reporter to just say I believe this guy, what he told me, it doesn't matter that I picked up a bill for a cup of coffee or, you know, a beer or a pizza or something like that. I would stand behind it and da-da-da-da. But when you get into an institutional level... Let me just push back there against uh, 18-year-old Thomas Morton. This is also 37-year-old Thomas NYU freshman. So you would agree that the coffee cup... like. There's no way you're going to deeply manipulate a story with a cup of coffee. Yeah. But if you heard, 
uh, I paid this source $10,000, it would be a major flag. And I think a lot of like where these sort of like capital journalism with a J sort of laws and regulations come down is almost like people can't have, it's sort of like um, when you're pregnant, you're not like America tells you don't drink anything. Right, right Actually, right, you right. can drink like a glass of red wine. Yeah. People do it in France. Life, yeah. But I almost feel like the FDA is sort of right where they're like, Americans can't handle this shit. What are you joking? Like, we're not going to be able to thread the needle on this. Just don't drink. Like, people are going to drink a six pack. If but you I let think them. that's a bad attitude to take towards people, especially like, you know, um, I mean, the FDA and Americans and pregnancy is something where you could, you know, damage another person's life. Like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's slightly it's different. A than great, reporting. It's a great idea to be, you know, to play it super safe on right. that. But I don't feel like the benefits of playing it super safe in reporting and storytelling, I feel like can really hinder. I mean, storytelling in its basis, reporting in its basis on a person to person level with subjects is human interaction. Right. You're supposed to go to people and talk to them and ask them questions and learn things from them. And in the course of doing that, like, you know, suddenly shutting off and being like, oh, I can't take, you know, oh, you got me coffee. Oh, I cannot touch this. Right. Like is a really kind of alienating behavior to partake in and can really be very off-putting too. Right. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, naturally there's like, I, th- I feel like the degrees make, the degrees make perfect sense. And I think somebody, you definitely could sway somebody to, to say something for you for a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. And, but that's like, you're not doing proper reporting at that point. You're not doing proper storytelling and it's not even a matter of what degree it was at. You know, I just think that the rules are there to protect the the paper and at the end of the day to protect the publisher. It doesn't help you write the story. What was it like for you? Like you're this uh, NYU freshman. You're having all these revelations. Might have been sophomore. Sophomore. And then like fast forward 10 years, Vice has started a internet TV station, one of the first of its kind, really, um, VBS TV. And you're in some far flung uh, locale like being actually confronted by someone saying like, hey, you know, what's in this for me? You know, like I'd like to be compensated a little bit like that. Like what was it like when these sort of journalism ideas that you encountered first in school like actually came into play like wall out in the field uh, telling stories? Well, it all made sense. Like um, by the point in which I w- we were filming videos and I was in different countries and stuff like that. I'd had, you know, four or five years of practice yeah. meeting people and going out and reporting stories. The video work we did, one of the things I'm really grateful for is there was no, like, I've never been trained in broadcast anything, in broadcast reporting, in documentary filmmaking, anything of that nature. Like, we were really, like, at least I was really, like, left to my own devices to, like, figure that stuff out on the ground. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun, <laughs> first of all, first and foremost. And and with that fun came a lot of like really quick understanding of what works and what doesn't. You know what rules are good, and are there for a reason, and what rules are just you know kind of stentorian bullshit that has just been passed down for generations and are the rules because they're the rules. And, and compensation is an interesting one because you know especially with when you're filming somebody, if you're, you know, interrupting their working life and like taking time away from them and like getting them to, you know, take you places and travel somewhere like that, you know, you can be putting somebody out of, you can be making someone go out of pocket for fairly decent expenses. And especially if you're, you know, dealing with somebody who's not of incredible means to begin with, it's a, um, it can be a burden. Yeah. And so I think, I, I think the that the degrees, the, you know, and it's like, well, that gets murky if you have degrees. Like, what's the cutoff? And there isn't a cutoff. You have to go with your gut. And I feel like that's like that's really one of the most essential qualities in doing anything of the nature of what we did, of making you know documentaries or reporting news or current events or anything like that. Is you have to like you really have to have a good sense of intuition for who you're dealing with, what they're telling you, what you're telling them, how you're behaving. It's all human interaction. You can't govern that with hard and fast rule or just like not with extreme set rules beyond the actual, beyond the extreme ones. There's always going to be murky areas and stuff like that. And you have to be willing to accept that and work with those. So you started at Vice in 2004. Mm-hmm. This video stuff started coming in. I think we started making 07, it seven, maybe. 06. Yeah, we started. We put up yeah. VBS started in 2007, so we were starting in like 2006. 2006. All right. So in that run, 
from you started you were an intern at Vice yeah, when you first started a, yeah. to the point where only a few years later you're like doing on camera talent yeah. stuff for them after having written a bunch of feature kind of stuff for the magazine. Um one of my favorite stories you did, I, I think probably the way I originally encountered your writing was um a story you did about joining three cults oh, in New York City yeah, yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, that was fun. Well, I was actually just thinking about that because was one of those cults, no, it couldn't have been because that's a all-women's cult. Nex- Nexium. Nexium, no. No. It was, uh, it was Adidam, which was like a guru cult, the Moonies, the Unification Church uh, from Korea, and Scientology. And I had to I had to take out the whole section on Scientology because of how litigious they are and, um, and because having, you know, been involved with them for a month at that point I was I was deeply on the hook with like paperwork and stuff like that and so I uh, I subbed it out for Aleph which is the current name for the Japanese cult that used to be called Am Shinrikyo who are the guys who gassed the uh, sarin gas at the Tokyo subway in 1995 I would say uh, the Am Shinrikyo Wikipedia page top 10 Wikipedia pages ever. It, it just, it that like, story is one of my rabbit favorite. holes There's inside a, of rabbit holes. And yeah, the story's crazy. They were super villains. It was like, they were the closest thing we have to like Cobra from G.I. Joe existing. So actually that cult story is a, a good segue to what I wanted to ask you about the uh-huh. period anyway, which is, so as Vice transitioned from being, um, you know, without, without putting too much emphasis on this, like the old vice or the new vice or the changes in the media, mm-hmm. vice started doing uh, forms of storytelling, whether you call them journalism or nonfiction, that were increasingly ambitious and put their reporters in, whether you call them reporters, yeah. in new places. And when more traditional media companies do that, they often have these rules yeah, as yeah. we discussed um, this sort of uh, these existing norms and when a newer person comes in um, for better or worse there's at least a framework that those people that are working with yeah, yeah. and it seems to me like you were not in necessarily a framework that explained what to do when Scientology uh, threatened litigation against yeah. you well or... I, I went to a lawyer though it was also yeah. it was still it was you know it was intuitive there wasn't I like the one yeah the one thing I'd always point out is like we're never like reckless people and I and mm-hmm. it, it always dispirits me to see us described as kind of like idiots because the people I worked for were extremely smart like Jesse Pearson's one of the smartest best writers I think I've ever worked for and that was what drew me to the magazine I think that's you know if you're a person who kind of like reads things and you you know you look at 2004 2005 vice versus like some of the things that gets compared to like maxim and shit like that like the i, I would hope that the difference in quality is very, very oh up. i think what i'm interested in is how that quality manifests uh, from a void and how a bunch of smart people mm. who don't necessarily have a model for what they're doing and in some ways are zagging ex- yeah. against existing models how do you find order and how do you find um, tone and, and editorial voice within that? I mean, was what well, were, what was the newsroom of well, whatever Vice called the newsroom at that time? Well, like it's for fun. You? It's almost like being like if you've ever been in a band and you kind of like and people kind of start you know speaking the same musical language and like hitting the same notes and stuff like that. And there's kind of like like a, like a spark of energy to it that's like yeah. really exciting. Like you know, a lot of are I feel like a lot of the motivation that I witnessed and that came from like that I felt was about what we hated in the media and just like avoiding some of the the traps and pitfalls avoiding the um you know avoiding the things that we saw being done by um the mainstream media and other players in it that turned our stomachs you know or just caused us to cringe and the order kind of you know order emerges like when you uh when when you set your mind to it if anybody's ever kind of like sat down and and written something of length or, you know, done anything creative. Like I, I imagine painting and stuff like that. You, you're always starting with a blank page or, you know, blank canvas or empty cassette tape. And it's fun discovering what you have, like like making the thing and seeing how it works and, and seeing how it fits in with everything else. And, you know, it bears mention too, it was a very small company. There was very few, like when I started, there was like 20 people in the office. And by the time we were doing video, you know, we'd grown to like 40 or 50. And I felt like, oh, the company's huge now. But what was amazing was, you know, everybody, everybody came from really distinct backgrounds. Um, 
a lot of us had been involved in some way kind of in the orbit of, uh, you know, the punk scene, wherever we'd come from, or just like the music scene or indie rock. Like I was never like a punk punk, but I was really into like indie rock and shit like that. And so, you know, for better or worse, like the underground music and culture scene in whatever town we were from. And there was kind of a, um, we all had a, like a shared vocabulary of kind of cultural artifacts and music and cinema and stuff like that. And we all had a shared sense of humor. You know, that was kind of one of the most essential things, advice, when I started and um, for a number of years thereafter. And it was the attitude, at least as I always felt it, was, you can, like, especially when we started doing videos, like, you can come in, like, you can learn the technical stuff for video. You can learn how to operate a camera and how to make things very easily. You can watch a YouTube video and do that. But learning how to have that sense of humor and, and how to be able to, you know, riff with, these people and how to kind of achieve that tone that we I feel like had in the magazine and then tried to transplant into video or whatever or reformulate was um, it's like that's the thing that you really can't quite teach that's the thing you want to look for in people what did you find I mean I would say your um, pieces both the written and video pieces um, could be summarized as experiential journalism um, for the most part. They involve you going somewhere and encountering people there and having uh, firsthand experiences with them. So as you developed that style, like what worked and didn't like work? Like what were the Mm. um, disasters versus the successes among your first forays into that stuff? It's interesting. Um, The disasters, I feel like the disasters were almost kind of what ended up being the style like everything like probably the first lesson I learned was just that like plans aren't going to work on the very first shoot I did everything I'd arranged fell through within an hour of showing up and the rest of it just had to improvise and just go with the flow and figure out how things were going to work since nothing that had been set up an arranged was going to happen. Does that involve like changing sort of like what the story's going to be yeah. about? Yeah. Oh yeah. And fortunately, I feel like I was really lucky to have come from to have my background in writing articles because when you go to write an article about something and you go and visit the place and you're taking your notes and stuff like that, the article's not written. It's not, you know, you don't know what the ending is in your head. You're there to find out. Yeah. And you take all your notes and then you come home, and you sit down at your computer and then you come up with the story, you know, you're learning it while you're there. And so often I see people in the video world, especially when they're like pitching things and, you know, trying to develop stuff who kind of have like, they've already figured it out. You know, they're like, here's what we're telling, you know, here's the conclusion we're trying to draw. And so we're going to go talk to these people and try to get that out of them, you know, and we're going to try to get this guy to say this to us and stuff like that. And that's great if you're making like a narrative film or, you know, a commercial video or something like that because you don't have a lot of time to screw around. You want to know where all the parts are. But as far as um, if you're trying to learn something and document reality, I think that's a really great way to set yourself up to miss the story entirely. Um, Thinking you already know it and going out just to, like, get your quotes from people it's not just bad methodology it's boring like it's like why would you even do that if you already know if you already know what the person's going to say to you yeah why are you even going out there and talking to them like what are you learning what's anybody learning at that point what did you find like if the greatest distinction between the tech stuff and the video stuff is kind of like with video you've either got it or you don't have it Mm, and you mm -hmm. can't fly back and get it again yeah yeah um like when you're trying to manifest serendipity but like on a clock with a budget what did you learn about not sort of just like oh I know something needs to happen but um, like really it needs to happen during the day I'm there while the cameras are rolling I learned patience yeah Yeah. which is the craziest thing and it drives producers insane Um, but and I don't know if it was just like you know kind of waiting at like if it was just playing like kind of Russian roulette with our budgets or not. But I found that it was like things happen. There's always a story. Like if the subject's interesting enough to go see it and the person's interesting enough to go talk to them. And no matter how different that story is from what you think it's going to be, if you approach it with the same kind of like sense of curiosity and openness, 
something will always happen. Something's always good. Like life's always going on around us. And like even, I mean, some of my favorite documentaries are like the Frederick Wiseman movies and stuff like that are things that capture just like these moments of absolute just quotidian normalcy you know just these like just little like just little gestures people make and shit like that that you know you see a million times a day and that then kind of elevate that and make you you know like make you appreciate it for the the rich display of you know the fact that you know like all human history that person's entire ancestry has come together for them just to like sigh at that weird moment and kind of look at the clock like there's something great about all that shit and it's it's kind of a matter you know it's less a matter of waiting for serendipity to happen than seeing where it's already happening, you know, see like noticing what's going on around you that is worth filming. Cause almost everything is, uh, or there, there, there always is something yeah. <laughs> that is worth filming. I feel like, and, um, and you can, you can try to force it to happen and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. And sometimes it'll look really corny and sometimes you'll get away with it. But if you let it happen, I feel like it comes across. People notice it. Like, Without a cast of professional actors who are like, you know, Edward Norton grade good, like you can't fake, you know, regular human casual interaction. Like it's that that is a thing that just like immediately comes across as, you know, it doesn't cross the valley of the uncanny if uh, if you're trying to fudge it. When you think about that sense of human interaction, I would say that the style during most of Vice's history has always been to put a host to mm-hmm. put an eye yeah. into the story. I remember you did a story. I want to say this is for the um, Vice show on HBO, I think, where you went to a, I believe it was a cancer clinic that treats cancer patients by having them smoke. Am I, is my, oh, uh, is my yeah, brain yeah. remembering? Um, my brain seems Indonesia. like it's raw Indonesia. Yeah, yeah right. I know. That's um, crazy. It was, um, they weren't specifically a cancer clinic, but it was a, yeah, it was a clinic and I can't remember the name of the practice that used tobacco specifically smoke tobacco um, to treat a variety of illnesses. And they claimed that, you know, it wasn't the tobacco smoke that was the problem that was causing all the cancer. It was something in the filters and it was, you know, it's a bunch of crap with free radicals, which every yep. time you hear that term usually means quackery is involved. And they were, you know, so they developed these, you know, new filters that you put on your cigarettes and those were supposed to, you know, help get rid of your acne and cure your cancer and fix your hepatitis and all that jazz. What like so in a story like that you put yourself through the smoking yeah. cure, and that's usually a pretty good tactic is to use yourself as the experimental subject. But I'm I'm interested in over time like how your conception of yourself as a character in these right. stories changed, and like how you avoid being like doing jackass right when yeah when when so often you need to put yourself into the story experientially in that kind of a smoky kind of way yeah smoking cure kind of way rather yeah it, it, it can be tricky i think um because i never you know like i never set out to do video stuff and the first time i did a video piece on camera i kind of assumed it was gonna be the last like it was like a weird it almost felt like a weird dare and even after having done it, I was sort of like, well, that's done with. They're going to see that and think it's garbage. So I don't have to, I can go back to writing. This will be great. And maybe it came from that attitude or maybe the attitude came from being able to like not think about the fact that there's a camera filming me and then eventually people are going to see it and stuff like that. That not trying to, not trying to act for the camera just made it, I think is, uh, I mean, again, it's just like, yeah, trying to document serendipitous moments, you know, instead of trying to force them just acting natural is the, <laughs> is the easiest thing to do. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, and I was very fortunate to work with some like really good producers who were like really smart about not trying to make me do things like seeing what worked, seeing how it worked and then just kind of like letting things happen, you know, helping arrange things and then being like, you know, go talk to that person, see how it happens and working with me too, not treating me like I mean, one of the worst things in the fucking world and you get a new producer and he suddenly like, you know, acts like some sort of like hired monkey who like, you know, just comes in and you tell them the story and then they repeat the story there. Like I've, you know, love working with producers to make the story, to come up with it in the first place, to like figure out who, you know, how, how we should go and attack it. All that jazz. And I think that, and that also helps too, that I always feel like I'm kind of like helping make something versus like just being the, the thing, the, the talent or the, uh, the reporter, I think goes a, goes a long way towards, you know. You talked about 
um, when you're talking about vice, there's a distinct sort of us versus them way to talk about it. And I think it's, I think it's a natural way when you're working in a 20 person office, of course it feels like us and vice is now thousands of, of people around the world, which is a very different us. Yeah. And there is something essentially different about reporting for a large company that's taken investment and is making big deals and is pushing its brand to every tentacle of the world through partnerships with YouTube, uh, through a show with HBO. The stakes are like essentially different. And the person, you know, you brought up when we were talking about NYU, you mm-hmm. know, well, that's ultimately for the publisher or that, you know, that's ultimately in their interest. Right. And while it doesn't sound to me like what you did on a day to day level actually changed all that much over this period, like the pyramid on which you were standing was changing its foundation radically. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment about that, about being uh, a part of something larger that uh, was once one twentieth and is now one thousandth and has all of these different connotations. Did that change your experience at all or your reporting at all? It didn't change the reporting. It didn't change how I went into the field. Um, and it was something I kind of kept in the back of my mind to not allow to creep in, yeah. creep into my thinking and to how I operated and how you know I worked with the different teams I worked with and making things. And for quite a number of years, I was very fortunate to be given um, kind of a large amount of leeway to do things how I thought they should be done and how, you know, in a a manner that kind of reflected the old sensibility that had worked. Um, There was there was a shift that, you know, kind of gradually happened and that I had to kind of gradually accept where at a point in like 2005 or six, I knew everybody who worked at the company and I like, I'd go out drinking with them. I was friends with them and I knew everything that came out. Like I knew every article sometimes like in the magazine, like I, you know, I was the last, the second to last, Jesse was the last. I was the second to last kind of like copy editor. I'd put in all the changes. I'd, you know, fix all the little, all the errors I caught and God, I just got, <laughs> just remembered things. Um, but I'd see everything that came out there and to a degree could even have a say in it, in what we had done. And I felt when I'd go out and leave the office and run into people who'd have, you know, who'd complain or criticize a piece or something like that, I felt both compelled and capable of defending it because I feel like I could, you know, at that time, I'd like I was so intimately involved with every little thing that like I could stand up for everything the company produced i could you know i could testify to its to its intentions to who the creator was what the context of it was like i could you know try to correct people and their thinking about why things had done and what had happened and and that was true even of the business deals too you know or like getting involved with viacom and stuff like that and that was always you know whenever news of that nature broke it was always like oh vice got bought by somebody and now they're owned by viacom and now they're owned by you know Murdoch, and now they're owned by Amy and all that shit. And I felt very strongly about, you know, because I felt that, you know, all that shit reflected very heavily on me, too, because I was one of, you know, the 20, 30, 40 people who were working there, that it was in my interest to, like, you know, defend that and stand up for it, and also to, like, you know, live up to the expectations of everybody else and the quality of content we were putting out. And over time, I had to, like, kind of let go. Like, we were making, you know, putting up, like, 20, 30, 50 posts a day, and you know, everybody's out there making video. Like, it can't be... It, obviously, it can't be responsible in any way for, you know, kind of the decision-making that's going on in any of those projects and what they, you know, look like when they come out. And I can't let it get to me that, like, you know, it's like, well, that's not really something, you know, it's like, eee, like, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't approach the story that way, and I don't, like, that's a bad joke, you know? I don't think I would have shot that. It's like, there's going to be stuff out there that I'm not as jazzed about and the business deals are going to escape me and I'm not going to understand, you know, exactly why we're doing certain things or why there's a new wing of the company or why this deal was being done. But yeah, all I, all I can do is basically defend my little fiefdom and just make sure that doesn't change how I work and, you know, how I tell stories, how my team approaches telling stories when I'm working with, you know, yeah. make sure that doesn't creep into wherever I am. 
the fiefdoms thing is interesting. I mean, you're not the only writer who sat there who, like, the story I that immediately came to my mind when you started talking about that is I remember reading after defending Vice, just because I general, I mean, I'm sort of a defender of everything in a weird way, yeah. but. It, you know, someone complaining about like a noisy article that was like, I don't know, it was like why Jimi Hendrix is overrated or something. Yeah. And I can understand that anyone who is involved in storytelling just doesn't want their stuff sitting next to that on the shelf. It's right. not. Yeah. It's not because that's immoral or unethical. It's weird. It's like people would almost think that the most offensive thing is like bad journalism, but yeah. to me, it's actually <laughs> like just like cheap content farming is really it's really where you don't want to sit and i feel like it can be it can feel a little bit like a contradiction where it's like i want people to have resources to go to indonesia to visit a quack clinic but the modern economics dictate that uh, one why Jimi hendrix was overrated yeah. article is necessary it's actually not one it's like ten thousand is necessary yeah. to send you there um <laughs> All of those things, even when you try to stay in your fiefdom, your fiefdom is like right next yeah. to the like Jimi Hendrix is overrated fiefdom. Well, it's yeah, and even as late as like you know in the last year, seeing stuff like that, like my instantaneous response is always like, "Crap, are we really saying that?" As if somehow I'm involved with it, you right? Know? And you know, and then I'll run into people on the field and they'll be like, "Well, why'd you say that thing about you know?" Why'd you say that thing about Cardi B? And I'm like, I didn't say that. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, that's a totally different person. For a company of 5,000 people, like, are you really going to hold me accountable for a blog post you read five years ago by somebody who doesn't even work there anymore? You know, like, yeah. it's a ridiculous standard for other people to hold somebody to. But then I also, like, I understand in that I definitely just mentally hold myself to that no matter what and just have to kind of. Well, I don't think talk myself out of it. I don't think any one person is personally responsible for a why Jimi Hendrix is overrated article. It actually, oh, a person it, who wrote it. it takes like an entire business model, advertising team. I mean, it takes a lot of people have to make a lot of d- decisions before it's getting made, and so it's a weird thing. It's like a monster that no one can say single handedly. Like I tried to make this thing, yeah, which makes it interesting for me in really thinking about this Jill Abramson thing, not just in a haha that sucks kind of way, which is, I think my, probably my first reaction was kind Mine of like, too. that's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Is um, <laughs> no one person, like no one person can be singled out and be like emblematic of the entire narrative of vice. Yeah. A company with yeah. 5,000 people. You were a particularly bad choice, but I don't really think that if anyone ends up being the face of that section of the book, it really is quite fair. And in a way it feels like, and this is also of course a microcosm for the whole thing. Like the employees become a pawn in a larger game. Oh, sure. And I wonder like how that feels that you're so in does some the way... boss though. Too, yeah. Frankly, like that, you know, how can you hold a guy who's, you know, flying around and doing whatever business deals he's making at the time responsible for something an employee who started two weeks ago, he's never met, who, you know, is just like writing your, you know, the, the Jimi Hendrix blog post. It's, you know, it's his company. Of course he should, you know, how, how wouldn't he be responsible for what his company puts out? But it's like, yeah, there's 5,000 people and there's different countries. And I feel like hopefully there's a good faith kind of argument that everybody's just trying to do their best thing, but I'm sure there's some, screw ups you know well I mean I think that there's a a certain person who would say that part of the reason why the New York Times has the um, don't uh, accept that cup of coffee policy is to provide a structure for that person who was hired two weeks ago so that the CEO of the New York Times company doesn't have to answer for that exactly and that's and that ultimately is to defend the company and and that's I think that's true too of like the first thing that struck me when I was in reporting one was that they were teaching everybody to write the same and that's newspaper journalism that's the model at its at its barest level like you you flatten 
anybody's individual writing style, any of their like choices they would make in writing, you can tell them exactly what information goes where. This is exactly how you write this story. This is exactly, you know, you have a formula for writing the blog post, the article, whatever you need. Everything has a recipe that you have to follow. And that way you can ensure that you have a consistent product. I don't think media should have consistent products, though, like not if it's to be considered like a creative enterprise. And I think if you're the head of a company like that and it's, you know, it gets to be that big, there has to be if you want it to be creative, like, I mean, and I'm trying to think it's like approaching the head of a movie studio and being like, well, why did you like why was that movie lit that way? There has to be, I guess, kind of a, a degree of um trust or agency that you know you're allowed to grant your employees um that it you know, hopefully you know pays dividends in the fact that they'll come up with things that you know are inspired and creative and that you're proud of having you know given them the money for and stuff like that but it's like these are all, all elements of doing something that are not safe and that's you know ultimately i feel like business the the business sense is always geared towards the side of safety of protecting the protecting the overall company and the interests of whatever financial backers they've got of the board all that jazz um and uh creative enterprises are inherently not safe they're about taking risks they're about trying to make something that you know you have in your head or you want to make that's new and bringing it into the world i mean i think that's kind of my ultimate criticism of what i read of this book not to put on my critics, I'm only allowed to put it on for uh, 60 seconds per oh. <laughs> episode, but it doesn't really feel like you're pushing back against her assessment of Vice. I mean, you would push back against it, but it's almost premature to even push back against it because it's so clearly formed prior, oh, outside yeah. of the reporting of this book, as evidenced by you are certainly not emblematic of the conclusion that she comes to about Vice, which just la- leads me to believe that this is just an opinion of Vice, which is actually fine. I think it's like fine to write a critical opinion of Vice and be yeah. like a media critic. It feels weird to like bring a real person's real life yeah. into that enterprise. And then to rearrange and fabricate the details of it to suit that opinion. Yeah. To fit your bias. Yeah, it's... Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing's just ugly. And um, um, it was to... like, yeah, I think I said in the medium piece too, it was like, if her conclusion is that, you know, oh, Vice does things in a kind of unprofessional amateur sort of way, like there's, you know, like you could have easily made that point in a different manner without having to stray from the truth, you yeah. know? And like, personally, I've always been like, it was something I talked to Jill about too. I was like, I was like, I think that's a strong suit. I think a lot of, a lot of our great successes have been kind of one on the back of us not adhering to you know strict professional standards that taking a certain kind of amateur approach to things can sometimes open up the door to like completely new avenues of discovery and information you know so how does it leave you thinking about sort of the larger idea that a person or a person's experience their story can tell a larger story because i think we rely on that idea oh, yeah. a lot in journalism and you've now had your human experience over the last 15 years turned into a book and on one level i think we can just sort of um, almost discard this because we know this was not your actual human experience right but there's a different book where she might have written about your actual human experience and used your actual human experience maybe to tell a more subtle or fully rounded um story about vice but you still would be the pawn in that yeah. story. Well, and people have done that, and people have done that very successfully, and not just yeah. in nonfiction. I mean, that's you know, that's what novels are about um, when they're when they're good, yeah. you know. And I, you know, I think it's a matter of craft at that point. You know, it's about yeah. like, I mean, she did like the thing that I keep seeing repeated in uh, the responses to her is, you know, without having to even get into like, was it plagiarism? Was it cited? Did I actually like do the donkey fucking story? Was that a completely different person? Yeah, which it was. Um, without yeah. even getting into all that stuff, it was just sloppy. There was something very, very sloppy and unfocused and careless about the way she addressed this. And I think, like, if you're not like invested enough to do a good job with things, and in and it shows in your output that you're just like you're apathetic about your subjects or just like. Because 
the you know the negativity the like the the hit job nature of it was like one of the things that like and I, I cannot believe like this is the hill Abramson's trying to die on like that she's like stood her ground and been like and and directly lied and said like oh Vice was given plenty of a chance to review the material and like look it over and it's like nobody I've talked to yeah got any opportunity before just like unless she's referring to the fact that they sent out galleys like that does not meet any like does not meet the standards of like being allowed to review the text like I mean I, don't know, I guess like if you're talking about writing a review but <laughs> um like it's 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 just false and we you know like I debated when I was when I'd read it and I kind of started logging the errors and I was writing the piece I was like well you know do I send this to Simon and Schuster do I put this up before the book goes out and maybe they'll change things or you know do I wait and there's a hard copy and then I can get them you know yeah and I was like no I was like I want to I want it to go up I don't want this to be on the record like that's uh and I and I definitely don't want to like I understand the economics of you know publishing a book and then having to pulp it or something like that and that's crazy I wouldn't wish that on anybody so I'm not gonna just like sit on this until I can be like haha I kind of hope they would retract it you know and at first, when it was just like an, like a few casual errors, when it was like the first, uh, I can't remember the name of the reporter first, said that she'd been described by Jill with all these details wrong, and it was you know it was like five or six details, and yeah, and including like, her yeah, I'll, gender, I'll, identity, and, including her gender, yeah, it's a big a big one, no joke. Um, well, to me, it was including the color of her shoes. It was just like why, like yeah. why, like why did you even need to include that detail if you're not going to get it fucking right? It's like, like the one of my biggest beefs is when she's screwing up the chronology of everything I told her. That at one point she describes, and she might have like she's. I, I understand that she's changing the EPUB as this goes on, which is like such a weird like she's so like opposed to digital media and she's like doing this like constant editing and revision of it she's a life even of Pablo a, fan. a book like ah oof um yeah, I mean the whole thing's just mind-boggling but there was uh at one point she had described I think it was two or three different shoots of mine and she gotten them very much out of order and it was bad enough that she was presenting them out of order because you know that kind of destroys the context in which things happened but she, for whatever reason, or whoever, like her writing assistant or whoever, for whatever reason, decided to say that I had flown from one shoot to the other. And so I took a flight from a shoot in 2011 to a shoot in 2013. And from there, I, I got on a plane and went to 2009. You know, I was like, yeah. why did I have to fly? Right. <laughs> like, why was that even necessary? Like, like what a weird, yeah. Well, it's interesting also because, I mean, the ending of the story has got, like, you having um, been dumped or broken up with your girlfriend and you're, like, sick. And, and I'm, um, I'm sleeping on someone's couch. Sleeping yeah. on someone's couch. And um, Shane Smith, uh, the CEO, is accepting a fancy, fancy journalism award, award, ha, ha, award ha, ha, I think. Yeah. Which is, Everybody's laughing with their champagne glasses. I've defended Aaron Sorkin for doing, like, the same thing with the <laughs> Facebook story. And I think that is what a good writer does. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is what a good... Yeah fiction writer does is make all the strands tie together and all of the themes have been um, put into a perfect braid that ends in a final scene. But life is so much messier than that. And when we start sort of playing with those dynamics in nonfiction, you kind of like lose all of the appeal of nonfiction. Like, I don't even have a particular interest in reading this book because yeah. like, I know a lot about these new media com new and old media companies i've talked to a lot of people who've worked at them and it's like well if i don't feel like there's like that connective tissue uh, of truthiness yeah, um, yeah when it doesn't it, it doesn't feel real yeah. it's hard for me to invest emotionally in the life of thomas morton no kidding right um so where do you go from here what um mm -hmm. have you started thinking about the next um act of your life oh uh, oh for sure yeah um, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to work on in the last year that I didn't get a chance to um, for various reasons. And so I'm excited to um, kind of be able to go find places and uh, people with whom to do that. I, I use an index card system to uh, kind of organize um, my thoughts and ideas. And I have, I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of index cards. It's a, it's a big stack. A lot of, yeah. 
I feel you like know? if this was like the crappy movie version, you'd go home right now and the index cards would be like sitting next to your windowsill and a strong wind would just blow them <laughs> blow all away. away. Yeah. Like, it's all gone. I've got I've got this green box I keep them in, okay. so that okay. doesn't happen. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah, sad. and uh, and and a, and a beautiful. I have a paperweight. that yeah. my girlfriend bought me that is a uh, is an actual. It actually works as a paperweight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm looking forward to doing a lot more writing. I I'd, I'd gotten um because by the uh, like two years ago when I was making the TV show. I at one point, you know, like five or six years ago, I was doing kind of a even balance of video work and writing, and pretty quickly as the video work picked up and there was more and more of it, um, I got away from being able to write as much as I had and as much as I liked, and I miss it a lot. I deeply enjoyed, like, I mean, as big a pain in the ass as it was putting together this whole medium thing to respond to the Jill Abramson book. I did enjoy writing it, like, and I enjoyed having a piece of writing, getting it finished and put up, and editing it, and then the response, which eh. <laughs> you know, I enjoyed it to a degree. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of that, a lot more writing, and hopefully, um, and and then some video stuff because that all that pays the bills, you know. What um, how do you reflect on dedicating such a large portion of your life to one company, one publisher, um, one brand? I mean, it, it feels like now for Someone who was um, 22 yeah. um, coming into the working world, the idea of spending 15 years at a media company is like insane. Like if right. you last two years, it was you crazy have like when a I was 22, gray beard. Yeah. And it's all, you know, uh, generally the kind of people who end up putting 15 years in your life or something usually work either for like the New York Times or, you know, for Ford or Coca Cola or something like right. that. You know, it's a rare connection to have so much of yeah. your life be tied up um, with a single company. Now that you're at the tail end of it, uh, how do you reflect on it? I mean, first and foremost, I was super lucky to be um, to have had all the opportunities I got through Vice. Like, you know, when I showed up there as an intern, I was looking forward to hopefully a summer of, you know, bouncing in and out of the office and like maybe getting to write a record review or something like that. And um, to have, you know, gone through 14 and a half years making a living like writing for a magazine that I loved, getting to learn how to make videos, getting to work with a lot of the people who were, you know, who's like writing and video making I, I, I really admired and getting to, it was great. Like it was fucking great. It was the best, like, and you know, like Williamsburg in like the 2000s is like the best place to be a 20 year old. It was so much fucking fun. And I look back on all that and there's, you know, it's like there's a nice tidy record of things. I don't think... I slacked off in making things. I'm happy with the stuff I made. And um, yeah, I uh, if we had been talking like a year and a half or two years ago, I'd um, like up to that point, it was everything was absolutely fantastic, better than I could have expected with that. Last year or so has been frustrating due to like kind of like office politics and shit like that. And, you know, you can see that in drastically diminished output. Um, but it, it was a good, I don't regret giving my youth there. I think I got a lot of things. I got to do a lot of things I never would have gotten to do anywhere else. And um, yeah, and now I'm psyched to move on. I think it's, you know, the the jolt of getting canned like out of the blue was angering uh, for a minute. And then I thought it would be like, be like, oh crap, now I'm going to be all depressed for a couple of weeks. But the next feeling I got was just sort of like, oh no, it's like, it was kind of like a feeling of liberation, like, or man, liberation was really fucking... <laughs> That's that's hyperbolic. <laughs> I, I felt um, that oppression never came. I felt relieved. Um, there was a feeling of relief. It's like, you know, auguring in the transition and working out all the, uh, you know, the P's and Q's are going to be, it's going to be a lot of work over the next uh, little bit, but it's I'm excited about moving forward and doing things and taking everything that I've picked up over the years and applying it to new projects. Now that um, there is a, semi-fictionalized account of your career mm -hmm. out there do you have any urge to write about your own experiences Probably. or do the uh my merchants of truth most likely yeah, yeah at some point All fuck right. knows if it's gonna be in the next like five years or when i'm like 70 and about to die all right well this show's been running for over six years so we have a good chance of making it till you're 70 so will you hey. come, come back on and tell me about it when uh, when the time comes yeah of course all right thank you if very my, much for this interview my hospital bed through that door <laughs> thanks yeah thank you 
Hey, I really appreciate you listening to the Long Form Podcast, as do my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Uh, we are brought to you through the generous support of people like MailChimp. Go sign up for an email newsletter. People are crazy for the email newsletters. Uh, and of course, thanks to Thomas Morton uh, for coming in and uh, doing this uh, on the news cycle. We like to hit it at least uh, once per year. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.